In 2012, Charlie Craig and Dave Mullins walked into a cake shop in Lakewood, Colorado. They were there to order a custom wedding cake. The couple was going to get married in Massachusetts, as Colorado didn't recognize same-sex marriages at the time, but they wanted to celebrate with family and friends in Lakewood. When they tried to order the cake, baker and shop owner Jack Phillips refused to make it for them. Same-sex marriage went against his religious beliefs. ABC Nightline interviewed both Phillips and Craig and Mullins in 2018 about what happened. So I realized right then that this is not a cake that I'm going to be able to design and create for them. So I tried to apologize to them and say, you know, I'll sell you cookies, brownies, birthday cakes, anything else in my store. But we weren't in there for brownies for my birthday. We were in there because we needed a cake to serve at our reception. And at which point they both jumped up, swore at me, stormed out of my shop. Craig and Mullins filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, a bipartisan state agency meant to advise Colorado's governor and other state officials on issues of discrimination. They claimed that Phillips had violated the state's Anti-Discrimination Act, which lists sexual orientation as a protected class. The commission ruled in the couple's favor. Phillips appealed the case to the Colorado Court of Appeals, which upheld the commission's ruling. Next, Phillips appealed the case to the Supreme Court of Colorado, when that court refused to hear the case, Phillips petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for review, and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case in its 2017 term. In a 7-2 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the baker, but not for the reasons you might think. Per Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion, the issue with the original ruling wasn't the ruling itself. It was the way that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had talked about the baker's religion. When the Colorado Civil Rights Commission considered the case, it did not do so with the religious neutrality that the Constitution requires. During the public meetings at which the Commission deliberated about the case, commissioners made a series of disparaging remarks about the Baker's religion. In a 2014 public meeting, a commissioner called the Baker's Christian faith, quote, one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use. The commissioner went so far as to compare the baker's expression of his beliefs to defenses of slavery and the Holocaust. The expressions of hostility toward religion and the disparate treatment this case received were inconsistent with the official neutrality that the free exercise clause requires of all government officials and institutions. Based on these comments, the court determined that although the baker was not necessarily within his rights to discriminate against the gay couple, the Civil Rights Commission had also failed to uphold the baker's First Amendment right to, quote, fair and neutral consideration of his religious beliefs. This is a story of civil rights versus religious freedom. It's a common narrative in cases like these, and it's a narrative that often pits one version of Christian values against a push to defend or expand the rights of marginalized people. There's been a really sharp polarization between uh, secular people and religious people on the left. That is E.J. Dion, a columnist at the Washington Post who writes often about religion. Among more secular people on the left, who particularly those who are sympathetic to gay marriage and also feminism um, and gay rights generally, there is a sense of the religious person as the enemy and not simply people within the religious community who are opposed to their position. In Dion's view, this divide is caused by the fact that each group's fundamental identity is at stake. You have the makings of a hostility that is driven by a reaction to someone else's hostility. And that's always a recipe for your really radical sorts of discord. It wasn't always this way. 
In fact, the history of American politics is full of activists whose progressive zeal was formed not in spite of, but because of their Christian faith. Abolition was a hugely religious cause. This was pushed by Christians who quite rightly identified the horror that slavery was and demanded it be uh, immediately ended. This is Washington Post columnist Elizabeth Brunig. There was a religious element to women's suffrage. Um, there, are, there were lots of uh, religious activists in the early 20th century union movement, the movements for pacifism, the anti-war movement um, against Vietnam, the 60s and 70s, environmentalism. When you think of uh, climate care and care for the environment, as that emerged in the mid-20th century, um, there, were, there were heavy religious overtones to that. Pretty much whenever you look at a major liberation movement in the United States, um, there have, have been religious hands involved in, in, a, in a pronounceably religious way. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. This is the first of two episodes exploring the relationship of American Christianity and progressive politics. In this episode, we'll look at the origins of progressive Christianity, some of its greatest successes, and reasons for its eventual decline. Abolition was the first major social cause in the American colonies. Dutch and German Quakers living in Pennsylvania published the first American anti-slavery petition in 1688. Francis Daniel Pastorius, a devout Christian, was the lead writer of the statement. He argued that slavery should be opposed on the simple fact that it so evidently contradicted Christ's teaching to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He asked his readers to imagine how they would feel if they were the ones enslaved and separated from their families. The statement fell on pretty deaf ears. Pennsylvania's economy was thriving, in part because of the inflow of slave labor. William Penn, the colony's founder, boasted that Philadelphia had received 10 shipments of slaves in a single year, and he was proud of the economic boom slavery was enabling. But the Quakers didn't give up their opposition to slavery. They convinced English Quakers to take action with the British Parliament. They encouraged their fellow citizens, including Quaker slave owners, to improve conditions for slaves, to educate them in Christianity, reading and writing, and to individually emancipate them. Many attempted to help freed slaves by providing funds for them to start businesses. And in 1776, Quaker leaders issued an official proclamation banning all members from owning slaves. Over time, this message began to spread to other Christian denominations, and it did so from the pulpit. In the early 19th century, the churches were almost the only public space available uh, for talk about any issue of importance. You know, in a sense, access to the pulpit in 1830 is like access to Facebook today. This is Dan McCannon, a professor at Harvard Divinity School. William Lloyd Garrison, Arthur Tappan, and Frederick Douglass established the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1823 and sought to end slavery in America, not by force, but by, quote, moral persuasion. The Anti-Slavery Society drew on the Christian faith of its leaders to proclaim that all people were made in God's image and precious in His sight, that God was the Father of all nations, and all people were thus of one blood. These Christian progressives worked closely with sympathetic ministers and pastors to shape their sermons. They often had very specific, strategic requests of these church leaders. One thing that they ask is to declare that slavery is not only an evil, 
but that slavery is a sin. This might seem a trivial distinction, but it has important implications. You know, we all try to undo evil, but if something is a sin and you want to be a member of a Christian church, you need to repent of your participation in that. So from the abolitionist perspective, the church's message to the slaveholder ought to be, repent of your sin by immediately freeing all of your slaves. And the abolitionists asked congregations and denominations to demand that their slaveholding members do just that. Christian faith wasn't just an aspect of these progressive leaders' identities. Many felt it to be the source of their inspiration. Take the radical abolitionist John Brown. In October 1859, one year before the beginning of the Civil War, John Brown led a violent takeover of a federal military armory in what is now Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, hoping to spark a massive slave insurrection. Brown was defeated, tried for treason, and hanged. In his very short speech to the court, John Brown explained that his actions were based on the biblical passage in Hebrews 13, which reads, Remember them that are in bonds, as if you were bound with them. American abolitionists were often ridiculed and attacked, but slowly their efforts bore fruit, especially in the North. Slavery was not ended by moral persuasion alone. It took years of bloody civil war and countless deaths to finally break the chains. But the abolitionist legacy sowed seeds of change that bloomed for centuries to come. Every subsequent generation of progressive social activists with a connection to Christianity has in some ways claimed the heritage of the abolitionists. After emancipation, Protestants, including evangelicals, directed their efforts towards a number of other social justice campaigns, including prison reform, workers' rights, affordable housing, women's suffrage, reducing alcoholism and domestic abuse, universal education, immigrant rights, and foreign humanitarian aid. These progressive causes were often explicitly motivated by Christian beliefs. Many activists believed that God had entered into a new covenantal relationship with America, which they identified as the new Israel. Maintaining this covenant meant holding themselves and the country to a higher moral standard. Some were also post-millennialists. They believed that they could hasten Christ's second coming by doing good works and establishing righteousness. Protestants of all stripes worked together on these movements, united in a shared commitment to the promotion of Christian values. But this unity would soon be ruptured. Two 19th-century intellectual developments caused the Protestant rift. First, a scholarly movement in Germany called Higher Criticism cast doubt on the divine authority of the Bible by highlighting textual inconsistencies. Then, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution called into question the biblical account of creation. These developments split Protestantism into two wings, progressives and fundamentalists. Religious progressives tried to reconcile Christianity with new scientific findings and continued efforts to create Christ's kingdom through social reform. Religious fundamentalists took the opposite tack. This group embraced tradition and reacted with suspicion to the developments of modernity, including social reform. They saw modern society as decadent and corrupt. But rather than attempting to save a fallen world, fundamentalist Christians emphasized the need to prepare one's own soul for judgment. The contemporary historian George Marsden noted that, quote, all progressive social concern, whether political or private, became suspect among revivalist evangelicals and was relegated to a very minor role. Michael Gerson wrote that fundamentalist Christians, 
quote, came to regard the whole concept of social justice as a dangerous liberal idea. In the early 1900s, the country's ruling class began excluding fundamentalists from mainstream American life, particularly after the Scopes trial in 1925. A Tennessee school teacher named John Scopes was put on trial for teaching Darwin's theory of evolution to high schoolers, which was in violation of Tennessee law at the time. Arguing for the prosecution was William Jennings Bryan, a three-time Democratic Party presidential nominee and a fundamentalist Christian. The trial found Scopes guilty, though the verdict was overturned on a technicality. Gerson writes that Bryan, quote, won the case, but not the country. Fundamentalists became comic figures, subject to world-class condescension. Meanwhile, progressive Christians continued to pursue projects of social reform, especially around issues of class inequality. In the beginning of the 20th century, huge numbers of immigrants were living in poverty, stuffed into dilapidated, disease-ridden urban slums. Many Protestant groups worked to improve conditions for the urban poor, setting up daycares, schools, health clinics, and community centers, such as the YMCA. These Christian progressives, whose cause was sometimes known as the social gospel movement, didn't just want to alleviate the symptoms of inequality. They wanted to reform the system that was causing it. An Ohio minister named Washington Gladden called this process social salvation. Here's Dan McCannon again. All social gospelers agree that there are sinful social structures and that the task of the Christian churches is to help social structures repent as well as to help individuals repent from their individual sins. These activists believed that religion's most fundamental purpose was to make the world more equal and just. The Methodists were really in the forefront of this. They produced a document called the Social Creed, which laid out what they saw as the application of Christian principles to life in industrial America. And these were things like the right to organize, an end to child labor, uh, minimum wage, you know, maximum number of hours worked per week. In 1912, former Republican President Teddy Roosevelt formed the Progressive Party and ran for president again. His campaign stump speeches often drew directly from the Methodist social creed. Here he is in one of those speeches. Friends, our task as Americans is to strive for social and industrial justice achieved through the genuine rule of the people. For many, this cause meant opposing robber baron capitalism and supporting socialist policies. Franklin Spaulding, the Episcopal Bishop of Utah, wrote in the Christian Socialism Journal in 1914, the Christian church exists for the sole purpose of saving the human race. So far, she has failed. But I think that socialism shows her how she may succeed. The American Federation of Labor began a movement called Labor Forward that explicitly linked unionization to Christian teaching. Jesus was described as a proletariat. Preaching had moved from the pulpit to the factory floor. Catholics, too, participated in many of these efforts. One especially influential organization was the Catholic Worker Movement, founded in 1933 by Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. The movement was committed to nonviolence, labor rights, and direct care for the poorest and most vulnerable members of society. They created houses of hospitality across the country where anyone could come and find food, clothing, and shelter. Dorothy Day spoke of her motivation on the popular Christian talk show, Christopher Close Up, in 1977. If your brother is hungry, you feed him. It's far easier to see Christ in your brother when you're sitting down and sharing soup with him. You don't any longer see the, the destitute or the drunk or the disorderly or the 
the unworthy poor. Progressive Christian support for workers' rights eventually led to the passing of the New Deal legislation of the 1930s. Here is President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1936 describing the motivation behind his progressive agenda. In the place of the palace of privilege, we seek to build a temple out of faith and hope and charity. Exploitative capitalism was not progressive Christians' only enemy. In the early part of the 20th century, black religious leaders like the Bishop Alexander Walters and Howard University President Mordecai Johnson also denounced racism as a systemic evil that required repentance. They preached that economic justice was impossible without racial justice. Through sermons and books, in classrooms and chapels, their message spread, including to white allies. Decade by decade, over the course of the 20th century, white social gospelers got more tuned in to that work, particularly in the 1930s. You had a lot of seminarians, both black and white, who got interested in what the work of Mohandas Gandhi might have to offer to racial justice. And they created this organization, the Congress of Racial Equality, which kind of pioneered the idea of sitting in against segregation. The Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, was founded in Chicago in 1942 and began campaigns of direct nonviolent action inspired by the Indian independence leader Mohandas Gandhi. Some of the first actions were restaurant sit-ins and marches against segregated housing. Other civil rights activists adopted CORE's nonviolent tactics, including the Women's Political Council, an organization of African-American women in Montgomery, Alabama. On December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks, a Montgomery activist and seamstress on her way home from work, was arrested for refusing to give up her seat for a white man on the segregated city bus. As soon as Joanne Robinson learned of the arrest, she sprung into action. I was the president of the Women's Council, and we had uh, prepared for this. This is Robinson in a 1979 interview. I called as many of the men who had supported us as possible, and I told them that Rosa Parks had been arrested and she would be tried. I called every person who was in every school and every place where we had planned to be, that I would be there with materials for them to disseminate. I didn't go to bed that night. She stayed up all night printing and cutting thousands of flyers. And after we had uh, circulated those uh, uh, 35,000 cut circulars, then we went by the church. That was about 3.30 in the afternoon, and we took them to the ministers. And it was there that they learned there was to be a boycott, and they agreed to meet at Dr. King's church, Dexter Avenue, that night to decide what should be done about the boycott after the first day. Like the anti-slavery society a century before, Robinson and her fellow organizers called upon church leaders to share their message from the pulpit. Robinson met with Ralph Abernathy and Martin Luther King Jr., the ministers of two of the largest black churches in the city. Although initially hesitant, they ultimately agreed to participate in the boycott until the buses were fully desegregated. Reverend King was appointed the president of the organization coordinating the effort. A few days later, supporters of the boycott gathered at the Holt Street Baptist Church to listen to Dr. King address them for the first time. Thousands of people showed up, packing the sanctuary and spilling out into the streets. The meeting began with a prayer, the reading of a psalm, 
and the singing of two hymns, Onward Christian Soldiers and Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Then Dr. King stepped up to the pulpit. He spoke about the violence, intimidation, and humiliation the black community had suffered in Montgomery and across the country. He called for the urgent and righteous pursuit for justice. And he linked the boycott strategy of nonviolence to the community's religious beliefs. Here is a recording from that night. We believe in the teachings of Jesus, he said. The only weapon that we have in our hands this evening is the weapon of protest. Yes, I'm Churches played an essential role in the boycott. They provided gathering and organizing space, recruitment and communication networks, and cars to transport people during the boycott. After more than a year, the boycott succeeded, and a court ruling forced Montgomery to desegregate its buses. Soon after, Martin Luther King and 60 other black ministers founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to extend the lessons of Montgomery across the South. Many white clergy members of mainline Protestant churches supported Dr. King in the civil rights movement, but their congregations often did not. White ministers risked a lot by speaking and acting in support of racial equality. Their attendance and contributions often declined. Some were threatened with removal. But for the most part, these religious leaders chose to support the civil rights movement anyway. Faced with the moral challenge of the Southern freedom struggle and the black power struggle, Protestant denominations decided to spend their social capital. You know, they took the risk of aligning themselves with a minority group struggling for justice. And it worked. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law. Five hours after the House passes the measure, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. Many congregants who were unwilling to follow their leaders' calls for action migrated to more conservative denominations. The reaction against progressive legislative and cultural victories helped give rise to the religious right. In Dan McCannon's view, progressive Christian churches sacrificed themselves for the sake of righteousness. By the 1970s, the institutional strength of those churches has been severely compromised, which does create the space for the institutions of the religious right to move in and gain the kind of political access that mainline Protestants had once had a monopoly of. Although pushed out of mainstream political life, fundamentalists maintained their own subculture through schools, ministries, and media outlets and they eventually started planning their return to a more prominent public stage. Redubbing themselves evangelicals, they prepared to present a more positive view of their religion, most famously through the preacher Billy Graham, who began preaching to huge crowds and great acclaim in the late 1950s. 
For the first time since the days of the legendary Billy Sunday, mass evangelism is front page news. Through great citywide and nationwide crusades, through television and radio, Billy Graham has become one of the most listened to men in the world. There's not a person here that could live the Christian life except, except Christ live it through you and in you. As evangelical numbers grew, the religious movement took on more prominence in American life. Billy Graham held meetings with presidents and graced magazine covers. But the amplified evangelical voice wasn't speaking up for social reform. Their political engagement was largely reactionary, steered by cultural developments that they saw as an attack on their moral values. They were less focused on social salvation than on personal sin. And to spread their message, they became masters of media. It's time now for the Old Time Gospel Hour with Jerry Falwell, pastor of the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Good morning. I'm Jerry Falwell, pastor here, and it's a real joy every Sunday morning over this station at this time to share with you our morning worship service. In the second episode of this two-part series, we'll look closely at the rise of the religious right, the surprising origins of the abortion debate, and whether it is possible for Christian progressives to once again play a prominent role in American politics. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about an extra special recent episode of the Hub & Spoke show, The Lonely Palette. In a recent episode, Behold the Monkey, host Tamar Avishai tells the unexpected true backstory behind what the New York Times has called probably the worst art restoration project of all time. If you know this so-called Beast Jesus, you'll definitely want to hear Tamar tell you more. Check it out at thelonelypalette.com or anywhere podcasts are available. Hub and Spokes. Audio Collective.